What's up, world? Welcome back to Authentically Us, the podcast where we talk about what it means to be authentic in everything that you do. Guys, it's a new year, and we have some great guests. You guys have already heard some of our guests this year. Um, it's awesome, and today we, we, we don't miss. We're not going to miss again, but before we jump into that, I'm Conroy. I'm one of the co-hosts. We got Tony here. Tony, say what's up to the people. Yo, what's going on, everybody? How y'all doing? Also, shout out to MSW Media, uh, one of our partners. We're so excited to be part of their platform. Tony, can you tell the people who we got as a guest today? Y'all, today you're in for it. We got David W. Swanson. He's a husband, father, pastor of a church on the south side of Chicago. He's the author of Rediscipling the White Church. Y'all. Y'all need to get that book. Go get the book. Hey, let's, let's not talk about it. Let's just jump right into the conversation. Let's get it. Let's go. Well, welcome back to another episode of Authentically Us. Today, we got David Swanson. What's going on, David? Man, thanks so much for having me. Glad, glad to be here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, tell the people a little bit, a little bit about where you grew up and what your upbringing was like. Yeah, that's a always a, a tricky question. I, I always have to ask how long people have because I, I'm uh, was known as a missionary kid, which means uh, I grew up in Venezuela and Ecuador. My parents were, were missionaries. My dad was a pilot, flew little airplanes around, uh, you know, some, some relatively remote areas. Uh, there in South America. So up until high school, uh, all my years, uh, as far as I can remember, uh, growing up in uh, Venezuela, nine years, and then another couple years in Quito, Ecuador, um, which was great. It was, uh, you know, not everybody's experience, but that was what was normal for me. I didn't think twice about it. That's just, you know, that's what it was and loved it. Had a great, great childhood. I moved to Southern California uh, during my um, high school years. Uh, so the Inland Empire, if anybody knows uh, the Inland Empire, Southern California. Um, and these were, you know, to, to kind of date myself, uh, this is the uh, early 90s. Uh, so these were um, O.J. Simpson years, uh, wow. Rodney King years. Uh, Cal- California state legislature was attempting to pass legislation that would make it illegal for children of un- undocumented immigrants to attend public schools. So this is kind of my you know, slowly coming to awareness of what it means to be an American, you know, having grown up outside the country. Uh, and then college in North Carolina, where my wife and I met each other, and then we moved uh, north up here to Illinois for grad school, thought we'd be here a year. And 22 years later, uh, we are still here. Uh, we're on the south side of Chicago, helped start a church 13 years ago here in the the Bronzeville community, and um, love it. Hope to be here for the rest of, of my life. I had a couple of follow-ups from that. Um, so are you fluent in Spanish? (laughs) Depends on who you ask and depends on how long I have to brush up on my, on my Spanish. My accent is good. Uh, but my grammar is probably a little rusty. Yeah. And then what part of the Inland Empire? Cause that's, that's an important, that's an important, uh, fact that you, you, you dropped in there. Right. Right. And, and only, only a small percentage of your listeners might actually care about that, but, uh, so I would say Redlands, but what is actually true is that we lived in a place called Mentone, which was just outside the city limits of, of Redlands, kind of going up to, into the mountains a little bit. And people who were from Mentone called it Mentone Beach 
because the idea was that when the big earthquake finally comes, uh, Mentone would have beachfront property when the rest of the, the state fell into the ocean. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. That is good uh, to know. That's awesome. Um, so, so you talked a, a little bit about being a pastor's kid, uh, being a missionary kid, mm-hmm. excuse me. What, what had you end up being in pastoral ministry? Yeah, I mean, I had a great experience. You know, I, I sometimes talk to kids who grew up in ministry families and they have, it wasn't a good experience for them, you know, and that's just wasn't my story at all. I had a, a very healthy family, healthy uh, parents and, and my sister. I think both of us just grew up. We for our parents between us and, and ministry, it was a it was a good good family situation growing up. And so the idea of ministry for me growing up was always a positive one. I saw it as as an exciting thing to to do, uh, an exciting way to participate in what God was doing in, in the world. But I didn't I didn't apply that to the church. To me, the church was <laughs> it wasn't as exciting. It was mm. I like to say it was a benign necessity, but it wasn't where the action was. Like if you want to really be doing exciting stuff with God in the world, it probably wasn't going to be in the local church. And so I always had that in mind. I, I thought I would, you know, be involved in ministry of some kind outside of the church. I went to graduate school and within like a first semester, the Holy Spirit really rearranged a lot of that for me. So uh, we were attending a local church here in the Chicago area, just real down to earth church, but got to know the pastor really appreciated his heart. He was again, a real down to earth guy, Uh, was taking a class about the church where I was learning all kinds of stuff. Like, oh, there's actually a reason for the church and God has a purpose for the church. And even though I grew up in a Christian family, I'd never really you know thought about that before. And, and the Holy Spirit just started doing something in me where I, within about six months, I understood the, the the significance of the local church, that this is the people of God. This is the presence of Christ in the world. And, and though we often fail to live up to our call, the potential is huge. And it, it, it made me realize, okay, if I really do want to be right in the thick of what God is doing, uh, the local church is actually a great place, uh, a great place to be. So yeah, I've been a pastor now for 20 something years and you know, all kinds of ups and downs in the church as we all know these days, right? It's it's a mess, uh, but it's still the bride of Christ. And there's all kinds of, I mean, just this past weekend, I was in uh, New York City for three nights, uh, two nights, was in the Bronx, was in Harlem, uh, up north of the city, just spending time with pastors doing great, great ministry in their boroughs, in their neighborhoods. And um, I, I love that. I, I love that that so many pastors are doing such good work in their in their congregations. Out of the limelight, not on the platform, just, just doing their thing. Now, now being a missionary kid and now a pastor, do you still have a huge heart for missions? Um, I'm sh- I mean, obviously I feel like both go hand to hand, but you have like a hands-on experience of what it's like um, being a full-time missionary. Mm-hmm. No, I love that question. I, I think what I would say is that I have a, a huge heart for mission, for the mission of God. Uh, I heard somebody say a long time ago that, it's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. You know, God's mission existed long before there was ever a church, right? Like from the very beginning of creation, God's mission of, of you know, of, 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 of especially post-fall, right? Of, of reclamation, of restoration, redemption from jump, right? God's mission is, is moving in the world. And so we live in the, in the age now of the church where, where we get to participate in that. So that mission is everywhere. Um, 
I, I think I used to would have said, yeah, you got to be a cross-cultural missionary or overseas missionary, but man, God's mission is everywhere. And so, for example, our church sent a small group of people to uh, Ecuador over the spring break last year, had a great time. It's with a you know the church community there that we're connected with. But this year, uh, they're coming to us. Uh, the the church in Ecuador is sending their folks to do mission in our community here in Chicago, and that's a vision I get really excited about. Like it should be, it should go both ways because we have just as much, if not more, to learn from to to be discipled by the 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 global church around around the world. So that's where my heart gets excited these days. Is you know thinking about what it looks like to really be in a a relationship of mutuality when it comes to God's mission. You know, I, I, I never, I never thought about that way, but I love your viewpoint on that about, you know, seeing it as God's mission and what my understanding of Chicago is that is very diverse, right? You got a mm-hmm. lot of different ethnicities, different shades of the rainbow there. Right. Mm-hmm. But I've also heard that it is also very segregated. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you grew up in, you know, SoCal, you, even I would say San Diego more is that we're very integrated with, um, you know, kids going to school with black, white, Filipino, Mexican, and Asian all in the same um, diaspora. And I guess my question is what I loved. One of the things you said is that the Ecuadorian church came up to you guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love that. Um, Do you see a big divide specifically in Chicago in the church, um, kind of reflecting the city, you know, how it's kind of spread out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's the heartbreak of, of our city and not just our city. Certainly there's others as well, though. I think you're right that there's certain areas in our country that are, are, are far more integrated, um, for, for lots of different reasons. But yeah, here in Chicago, we have a legacy of federally enforced, uh, racial discrimination when it comes to housing. And so our city, you know, kind of has the, the built environment itself, has that legacy of of federally imposed uh, segregation. Now that that federal uh, those laws no longer exist, right? But the legacy is still there, and the way that uh, the way that people accumulate wealth in this country is typically through uh, through their housing. Um, and so, you know, I can I can be born into a into an era when you know, those laws no longer exist, but still be given a head start by by virtue of who came before me. Um, so yeah, we you know the, the neighborhood that our church uh, was started in uh, is called Bronzeville. It was the, the the one neighborhood in the city of Chicago where African American people moving north from the Jim Crow South during the Great Migration could move with a level of of safety and security. So it's an amazing neighborhood. You know, history is is skin deep in our neighborhood. All kinds of you know uh, famous folks who who lived in the community. Amazing things that have happened over the years. So I love it because I love history. You just walk around. He's just right there. It's living history, right? Um, but that that legacy still exists today. So the south side of Chicago is majority African-American, west side majority African-American. Some of the ethnic neighborhoods still exist a little bit more on the, on the north side. Um, and this means that you know poverty gets pon- concentrated in certain neighborhoods, the way that schools are funded uh, because of local taxes. So, you know, some schools have more resources than other schools and so on. So that that legacy of, of segregation is still with us today. And, you know, it's my contention that those of us who are Christians uh, are not are called to, to not conform to that legacy. Right. Like the way that we live and worship and, and act in the world should cut across uh, those those old lines of, of division and segregation 
and demonstrate something different to our city. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, so you, you are clearly aware to racial disparities, not only right now as you're talking, but if anyone were to follow you on Instagram and see your posts, you, you are unashamedly, um, calling out the white church. Hmm. Um, talk to us about what it looked like for you to wake up to your whiteness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a, a Damascus road experience. There wasn't one, you know, singular catalytic moment where, you know, kind of the scales fell from my eyes and I, I woke up to, to the reality of, of race and, and racialized whiteness. I think it was much more of a, of a slow waking up process. I do think that, Having grown up in an environment where I was the the cultural linguistic minority, did probably sensitize me in a certain kind of way to just be a little bit more vulnerable, you know, to to difference than I might have been otherwise. Um, but yeah, when we moved uh, to to the Chicago area, we got to know some uh, some good good friends. Uh, who a, a guy who's now my my best friend, who himself grew up on the south side, is from the south side of the city, and so as we got to know the city, we were getting to know it, you know, through their eyes a little bit. And, you know, just hearing stories, right? Just hearing people's kind of live testimonies of what life was was like from different starting points than than I had known. And I, I think one thing that we see with white people sometimes is the struggle to believe people's experiences when those experiences are very different than their own. For whatever reason, that's just that was never an issue for me. I just believe people. You know, they say this is what happened to me. It's like, okay, then that happened to you. And just because it's different than what happened to me doesn't mean it's not true. It just means like, well, I got some learning to do, right? I, I need to understand why is it that that happened to you? Why is there a pattern there that you have been impacted by that I have been oblivious to? Um, so I think I had some natural curiosity that just, you know, learned a little bit more, then learned a little bit more, then learned a little bit more, you know, made these friends, then these friends, then these friends. Do you know what I'm saying? So that over time, right, my life just gets kind of turned around in such a manner that, well, now this is my community. These are the people who I'm attached to. These are the the people I'm doing life with. Um, these are the testimonies that I'm hearing on a regular basis. So, yeah, I, I think... It's been a long process. It's been a long journey. I think for those of us who are white, there's no arriving, right? Because we live in a sinful world, which means that I am prone to backsliding. You know, I, I am prone to retreating into my cultural comfort, my cultural privilege. That's that's what it means to be a, a sinful person in a fallen world. So there's no arriving at some you know mystical magical place of, of wokeness for for white people. Uh, it's it's the journey, the lifelong journey of, of sanctification and discipleship and following Jesus. Um, which I think is, that's true for all of us in different ways, right? Like that's the life of faith. We don't depend or rely on our own self-righteousness. We're always dependent on the grace of Jesus as a white person that takes a particular shape. Uh, but I'm dependent on the same gospel as, as, as everybody else's. Yeah, that's so good. Um, talk to us about your book, uh, re the white church. Yeah, I mean, it came out of this experience. So here I am pastoring a multiracial church in a majority African-American neighborhood, but I'm also doing some work uh, in, in the church planting world with where I'm in more white spaces and just recognizing these feel like two different worlds, uh, even though it might be just a few miles apart. Like the, the we're reading the same Bible, um, you know, kind of depending on the same gospel, and yet we're just navigating the world in totally different ways. We're interpreting current events in very, very different different ways. And 
I was seeing in that moment in time, particularly that there was a, a large percentage of white people, white Christians who were excited about certain political movements that, you know, were seen as a threat to many of my you know friends and colleagues and community members of color. And I was like, man, this is, this is wild to me. You know, here you have Christians of color. And in my context, particularly African-American Christians saying, Hey, some of these political movements are, are a threat to our communities, um, are, are fear inspiring. And, and yet white Christians kind of just tuning that out, ignoring, you know, those, 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 um, those experiences, those testimonies. And I just started to wonder, so what's happening then in our churches on Sunday mornings? What is it uh, about our discipleship that is leading so many white Christians not to closer uh, trust, trustworthiness, not to closer proximity, not to, tr- not to closer solidarity with the rest of the body of Christ, but rather seemingly away from that proximity, away from that solidarity. So that in the end, it seems that many of us who are Christian and white have more in common with white people who are not Christian than with Christians who don't share our race. And, th- and when I read the new Testament, I think well, that's t- completely upside down. <laughs> you know, you see in the new Testament, people who didn't share anything in common except Jesus, right? Not status, not ethnicity, not language, not gender, but because they shared Jesus together, they, they, they shared everything together. And in our racialized, you know, society, it felt like we had really gotten that upside down, particularly those of us who are, are white Christians and that's what I wanted to try to understand. What is that? What is, how do we think about this through the lens of discipleship? And is there something different that we could be moving toward? Do you find that like difficult to have those conversations with many, uh, maybe white Christians or even white Christian leaders that may have a different viewpoint or are you, are you actually finding that people are actually open to it? No, that's such a good question because my assumption was that three people would read my book, right? Like this is, people are looking for right now. And certainly there's plenty of pushback. And I have no doubt you you, you two know all about that and experienced that and kind of observed that. So there's a whole lot of that. But to my great and thankful surprise, there is there are quite a few people, pastors, ministry leaders, who have come to see that as white leaders, as white pastors, they do have a particular responsibility when it comes to the reconciliation of the body of Christ in this society. That was very surprising to me. I thought I had to do a lot of heavy lifting to get white Christians to see, you know what, this issue of racial justice is not someone else's issue. It's actually our issue. Like the front lines of that battle is in white spaces, not in not in communities of color, you know, African-American churches and so on. It's in our, our majority white spaces. And to my great surprise, there's actually a critical mass of, of churches who had already made that turn and now they were looking for, okay, so what do we do with this knowledge? If if this really is our responsibility, if we actually have a role to play in our majority white church or ministry, what does that actually look like? So that was like mind-blowing to me and really, really exciting. Now, those are not the stories that we hear in the news, right? Like those are not the but they're they're out there. And I've I've had the great pleasure pleasure of of you know visiting a number of these churches, getting to know their pastors. I was with a pastor down in Indianapolis um, late last year. He's been doing this work in his community, um, partnering with a, a, an African-American congregation, doing really good work together in, in their city, being intentional, being slow, looking at this through the lens of discipleship. So this this is hopeful to me. I think more of this and, and we start to see the needle move. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Um, what would you say 
a white church in a majority white context or town, what is their responsibility when it comes to these issues? Right, because, you know, for for most of, of our history, we would tend to say, because I'm in a majority white church in a majority white town, there's nothing I can do. And I've had friends who've pastored these sorts of churches come up to me and say, oh, I love that you're in the city. I love that you're in a multiracial church. I wish I was there. But because I'm not, there's not really anything I could do. And I was kind of like, yeah, I guess that's that's true. But that misunderstands fundamentally the nature of race, right? Uh, the the history of race is the history of whiteness. There there is there's whiteness before there is you know the racial categories that we understand today. Whiteness is built on the pursuit of power and uh, you know, exploit exploiting exploiting uh, and plundering power. We can get into that if we if we want. Um, but if that's true, if that history is true, then what that means is that those majority white spaces are actually where the discipleship really does need to happen first, right? And so the the white instinct has been, okay, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be involved in racial justice, then I need to go over there where there are some fill in the blank, Latino people, African American people, urban people, right? The, all the all the things, right? Well, actually, no. Um, because of of how we understand what race actually is, the the real work is is needs to happen right in our in our majority white community. So so what do we do about that? Well, I think it starts by helping white Christians understand what it means to be white, that our society has conditioned us, has discipled us, I'd say, to think of ourselves as unraced or unethnic or uncultured, right? Uh, we're just the neutral by which everybody else is is kind of categorized and observed. We're we're the we're the the beige background. Um, but of course, we know that's not true. We know that um that to become white in this country, uh, you had to give away your culture. You had to give away your ethnicity in order to gain the the power of racial of racial whiteness. So there's some there's some formation that needs to happen around that. And you think, well, that sounds sociological. Yeah, okay. There's sociology in there. There's history in there. There's a whole lot of Bible in there, right? Because how did God create us? You know, where does culture come from? It comes from God's good creation. So what happens to a people when they give away their birthright of culture, of ethnicity, of place in order to gain power? So this is Bible theology stuff that we can be doing with our folks. What does it look like to reclaim then God's good gift of culture and creation and place? What would it look like for a community of white Christians to say, uh, our posture is going to be one of repentance and confession, but also one of joyful expectation because now we are in this place and this is God's place as well. And so we're going to allow ourselves to be cared for by this place and formed by God's creation, even as we come to care for it and love it. And then here's what happens, Antonio, nine times out of 10, the white people who said this place is all white come to understand, actually, it's not <laughs> that that our racialization has kept us from actually really, truly seeing and so now I start to see that there's a lot more diversity in this place than I ever understood before. And sometimes that's race, sometimes it's ethnicity, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's class, right? Like it, it, it manifests in lots of different ways, but the boundary crossing gospel then starts to open up our eyes to say, actually, I don't have to leave this place to start living in a radically different way, such that the body of Christ actually reclaims some of that surprising power to say, even in this place, people look and observe at this city on a hill and say, well, 
how do you do that? How does that hold together? Well, let me tell you about the gospel. Wow, that's good. So um, I was a part of a church um, that, you know, I was on staff. It's wild. And um, it was when Mike Brown, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Philando Castile, Mm -hmm. uh, all these murders were happening. And I said to our pastor, hey, I realize um, this isn't even mentioned from the pulpit. Um, We have people of color here. This needs to be addressed. Um, And their response to me was, oh, we don't believe in a social justice gospel. Um, And, you know, the reality of, of it is, is there are many Christians that, hold that standpoint what would you say to those christians yeah man i i i'm i've heard variations of that story so many times and it just it doesn't get any less terrible anytime i hear somebody tell that story right so antonio i mean i hate that that you were in that situation and i'm man not that it matters but i'm sorry i'm sorry that 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 a pastor said that to you because it it to me it be, it betrays such a misunderstanding of both the gospel, but also what does it mean to be the people of God together, right? So there's two things that happen when 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 that church or those leaders refuse to say anything from the, from the front. There's at least a couple of things that are happening. One, yes, the people of color in that congregation are receiving a very pointed message about whose experience matters, about whose reality is normative in, in this space, um, about what sort of pastoral care you can expect about whether your pastors are even aware of the dynamics that are impacting not one or two people, but we're, but countless people in this country. He literally can't turn on the news and, and miss how many people are being impacted by this moment. But, but, but the other thing that's happening is that you're abdicating your responsibility to disciple the white people in your congregation in a moment like that as well, because those white Christians are being discipled by what I what I would call racial discipleship in this country, that, right? They're being formed to think of this of, of of their neighbors through a racialized lens, what Brian Stevenson calls the narrative of racial difference, right? And now you are are not countering that that destructive discipleship. You're not standing in front of your church and making very plain the heart of God for for all of our neighbors. So there's a there's a kind of pastoral malpractice that's happening in that moment of care, and then there's an abdication of the responsibility to disciple everybody in your congregation toward this this kingdom ethic of reconciliation and justice. So I, I get that some people are, are are nervous around the language of social justice. I'm it's not a hill I want to die on. Um, you know, call it what you need to call it, but if you're not engaged in the work of justice in our society. If, if you're not countering these false narratives, which are doing genuine harm to our neighbors and to the people of God, uh, that that's that's an irresponsible move, in, in in my opinion. Yeah, I you mentioned one thing earlier um, about being a pastor for twenty two years. Uh somewhere in that ballpark, yeah. Um and they talk about your first ministry, right? Being your family. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, 
you know, you're doing so much work, I think, for justice. You're doing so much work for the black community and communities that are just under underserved in the church and in the community. How how does that reflect with your 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 children, your wife, or even like your family, your extended family members? Because we just know extended family mm-hmm. members can be can be a lot, you know. Can be a lot, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, let me not put anybody's business out there. That's that's not mine to tell. Um, so let me say a couple things about that. I appreciate that question a lot, Conroy. Um, you know, we we have the great fortune. So it's my wife and our, and our two sons, uh, both elementary age and and middle school. So we have the great um, blessing of living uh, in a community that's walking distance to both boys' uh, public schools, schools that we really love and, and appreciate, about a mile from where our church meets. Uh, so so we we have you know, we, we get to be close to our people, uh, both our neighbors, uh, but also our, our church people. And that's a, that's a huge gift. That's a huge gift. So there, so a, a lot of, you know, public ministry can feel very disembodied, right? Like if it's on social media or, you know, you speak somewhere else, or you guys doing a podcast, right? Somebody could be listening to this from anywhere in the world. And they never actually get to meet the two of you. So there's a disembodied element to it. That's fine. That's just, it is what it is. If you're not anchored, uh, in actual community, embodied in flesh community with people who know you, who can check in on you, who can read your body language, that gets that gets dangerous, I think. So so for me and for my family, that, that we get to belong to a place and to a people is a, a saving grace. Um, my wife is finishing a, a, her master's degree right now. She's going to be a, a preschool teacher, Lord willing, uh, starting uh, in the fall, hopefully one of the schools walking distance from our apartment. Our boys are both doing great. Um, yeah, so so all of that is is amazing and, and good and so thankful. You kind of go out a little bit, the concentric circles, extended family, and there are costs. Uh, there are costs, I think, to uh, to fall always right. And Jesus promised us this. What did Jesus say? Like, you follow me, and you know, I, I did come to bring a sword, and uh, you have to choose me above your mother and your father. And you know, I think he meant that stuff. I think Jesus didn't mean that in a spiritualized way, but in an actual way. I mean, he came to form a new family uh, who, whose whose gravity would be his own shed blood, right? The, the, the Eucharistic blood, the shed blood of Christ becomes thicker and more bonding than our own biological blood. The baptismal waters are what, what holds the body of Christ together. That's it sounds nice, right? Until you actually experience that pulling apart, right? Um, so that's the that's the pain. The gift is that the family that God gives us is actually really, really good and far better than anything we could ever imagine. And so while there have been strains and pulls and tugs over the years, there's been, you know, painful moments, no doubt. Um, it, it's not left me isolated. It's not left me alone. If anything, it's just drawn me deeper and deeper and deeper into the family of God. And so sometimes people will say like, well, what about the pushback and the haters? And it's like, yeah, that stuff's all there. But like, what's the alternative? Am I going to go back? Like, am I going to go back to some segregated, you know, community to some majority? No way. This is just way too good, right? The family of God is far too good. The justice and righteousness of of God are far too good. Uh, for 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 me to ever want to you know turn back. In your opinion, what does re- reconciliation or racial reconciliation mean to you, and what does that look like practically? Mm-hmm. And now that's a question we could spend a whole lot of time on. A lot of people don't like that word reconciliation because they're like reconciled to what? You know, at what point 
just take black and white people, for example, at what point were, were we conciled in the first place <laughs> that that point never existed? What are you trying to reconcile to, which is a super legitimate critique? I'm, I hang on to the language of reconciliation because it is biblical language. We find, you know, find it in second Corinthians five. And so for me, reconciliation, racial reconciliation between people has to be understood through the lens of our reconciliation with God, which is to say that, that we were reconciled to, 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 to our very creator, something that we had no merit for, no business, uh, you know, even, even imagining, and yet God makes this possible. So when we're talking about racial reconciliation, I don't have in mind returning to some utopia when everything was fine. I, I rather have in mind a kind of eschatological intervention from God, like breaking into human history and making something possible that wouldn't be possible otherwise. That that's that's how I think about about reconciliation. And theologically, then, when we think about reconciliation, we're going to have to think about repentance. Uh, and repentance is never just like a change of thought; it's a change of our entire, you know, the way we're moving in the world. We're going to move in a different in a different direction. And there's often going to be repair that's attached to that to that repentance. It's going to be embodied. It's going to be visible. It's going to bring shalom. Uh, so our church is studying right now Isaiah 58, and 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 God says in Isaiah 58, you're going to be called uh, restorers and repairs of the breach. Right? Like it's physical. It you can touch it. You can see it. Like there, this thing was broken and now it's built. And so the, the the Western tendency to really individualize and spiritualize this stuff away to just this ethereal experience, I think is really, really, we're missing something here. So, so reconciliation, again, it, it, it's possible because God intervenes in the world and Jesus makes something uh, possible that wouldn't be otherwise. It's something we can participate in, but in a very embodied communal fashion that actually is going to rearrange um, how we spend our money, uh, where we spend our time who we prioritize on and on and on. Mm. What would you say you're most proud of um, in terms of that, like in terms of reconciliation or essentially uh, like when it comes to discipling the white church or like kind of desegregating the church? Cause I, I see on your Instagram, like you're really big with, you know, like you said, you're in, you know, very white, spaces with church planters but you live in different communities and your church is a different community like what are you most proud of um in that in that aspect can i say two things yeah absolutely all right so the first would be very local it's our church you know um I, I did not think I would be the pastor of this church without going into the details. It was kind of a last minute thing. And even when I got called to be the pastor, I'm like, I am the wrong person. You know, this is a black neighborhood, a multiracial church. I am literally the last person you should be calling to pastor this church. And in God's grace, right? Uh, I, I come to see that, no, you, David, you are the person because this will be the place where your weakness will reveal the power of the gospel. And where your foolishness will re reveal the, the wisdom of the gospel. So I, I believe that now. But the fact that 13 years later, our church is still here. Um, we got this thriving community, uh, that there is this, this racial, ethnic, cultural diversity. It's not perfect. It's messy, but we're doing it. You know, we're, 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 we're living life together. We're worshiping. We launched a nonprofit a handful of years ago. That's, uh, you know, working with young people in our neighborhood who've been impacted by, you know, tra traumatic events of some kind, uh, many who've experienced gun violence, uh, getting to to be with those young people and see kind of their hopes in, in the future is, is incredible. So local stuff for sure. And then the other one we kind of hinted at already, like the fact that there are white pastors, white ministry leaders, white churches who have had a paradigm shift. 
and who are no longer outsourcing what is actually their responsibility. And they're growing up, they're they're maturing in their faith in a way that that's allowing them to lead in their majority white spaces without losing themselves, uh, without abdicating that responsibility. That's a big, big deal to me. I really do believe this is spiritual work. Uh, I think there's spiritual warfare around this work. And so when I see people in those situations taking on some of those really ancient strongholds, understanding their battle really is against principalities and powers, that's a big, big deal. And um, I pray their success. I, I, I pray that they get networked with each other so they don't feel lonely and isolated. But I do feel proud uh, to be associated with with folks like that. Mm. When when you think about the church, you know, Tony and I talk a lot about the, how the church is a beautiful thing. Um, and that's big C church, right? Mm-hmm. As a whole. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things at the church. Mm-hmm. It's not so beautiful. Um, but I do want to get your how take. long do you got? How long do you got? Right, right, right. <laughs> I do want to get your take in like what do you love about big C church, the church in general, you know, because you you've seen it. In so many different facets, you know, I I went on a missions trip 2012 to Kenya and it's like doing the church is like, it's like amazing, you know, and then now, you know, I serve in a local church and it looks different. It's still amazing. But what are some things that you love about the church? Mm-hmm. I, I love the, the messiness of it. Um, and then by messiness, I don't mean like the real big mess, right? I don't mean the, like the, the manipulative messes that we see right now, the power abusing messes, that, that's not what I mean. I mean, like average people learning how to love each other, learning how to care for each other. Like I get excited. People be like, oh yeah, you know, this thing came up and like, actually it happened last night at our, we do a weekly Bible study and uh, we don't have our own facility. So we meet at a, a friend's church, West Point Baptist church. And um, I saw this little girl and uh, I was like, I didn't see her parents. Um, and her parents are, are you know, you know, some some parents are a little bit more like uh, protective helicopter parents kind of the situation, you know. And this is their only child. I was like, oh man, I don't see her parents. That's kind of strange. And then about thirty minutes later, I saw her mom come in, and I realized, oh, she had to work late, so she had somebody else pick up her daughter, bring her to Bible study, hang out, you know, until she could come pick her up. And I'm watching this happen in a cross racial situation, right? And I think, I don't know that this would have happened outside of the church, like this local congregation. Like I, I, I know enough of the, these people's stories, right. To know kind of how their lives were organized to say that, that they, they get to participate. I get to participate in something in people's lives in a way that I just wouldn't have had access to otherwise people. I mean, I have people in our church say, Honestly, I've never been in a white person's house before, you know, um, and, and and vice versa. Um, seeing people ask people of different race or ethnicities to be their child's godparent. Um, yeah, so so I mean, I could go on and on, right? Like messy stuff, seemingly small stuff, but ways in which people are being woven together in the body of Christ to to literally be a new people together. That keeps me going, you know, all week long. And that's such a beautiful thing because in my mind, that's what I imagine heaven to look like, that's right. right? It's not right. going to be the white people are in this that's section, right. the black people are in this section. It's like, I imagine heaven to look like that, you know, look like, um, you know, black people 
working with white people or dropping off kids or asking yeah. them to be their their godparent. So I love that. And I think that is beautiful that you're in a community that is living out the gospel, even if it's like a small local church. But I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's what the local church is. And I would even say like, like not even like, even though it's a small local church, I actually think it's because it's a small local church. I think as, as, as American people, we're so fixated on the big and the spectacular, like the bigger, the numbers, the bigger, the building, the bigger, right. There's a, there's a, um, pastor i really appreciate eugene peterson uh, who translated the message and he said this thing about pastors i never forget he said you know so many pastors um are really worried about the temptation of sex and drink he said this a long time ago before internet porn right he could add that to, to, to the list today he said but but we never worry about the temptation to crowds i thought that's that's the american temptation is is to the spectacular to the big to the impressive and i think if you can work against that if you can be content with the local you know with the small and however that manifests some beautiful beautiful things can can happen in those kinds of spaces Mm. that's so good so throughout this um throughout this episode you've you've said that you um pastor a multiracial church do you use that language intentionally or do you view multiracial and multi-ethnic as synonymous yeah depends on the day i guess yeah i i I waffle back and forth to be honest with you um i do say multiracial on purpose because we do live in a racialized society and i think it's one way of saying you know of saying we, we got to reckon with that seriously. And and though white people have lost touch, most of us with our ethnic heritage, we are racialized. And so, you know, we have to, we have to own that. We we have to not pretend that it's that is otherwise. Um, and this racialized society does does racialize people. You know, our our director of discipleship is Korean American. And you know, he he jokes like, how do I get lumped in with just Asia, like this massive, massive continent with so much cultural, linguistic, you know, difference in history. Um, so I think by saying multiracial is trying to reckon with some of that. I do like the language of multi-ethnic church, and we use that as well. I also think it's important to reckon with cultural difference uh, because you can be a you can be a multiracial, multi-ethnic church and be monocultural. In fact, you know, the the sociological literature says that's what most multiracial churches are are in fact culturally white. And so we talk about multicultural as well as to try to kind of dig under that to say, look, we understand that because in our case, there are white people in the church, there's going to be a a, a tendency to to default to cultural whiteness. So we got to name that. We got to be really clear about that if if we're not going to allow that to happen to us. So, So the multicultural language is helpful too for us. That's really good. Can you go more into... Like what you mean by being multiracial but still being monocultural? Yep. So the 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 person to read on this is a uh, sociologist of religion at Ohio State. Uh, her name is Corey Edwards, Doctor Corey Edwards, and uh, she's got a phenomenal book called the The Elusive Dream. And what Doctor Edwards and others uh, have shown is that if you have a if you have a multiracial church which has a percentage of white people in it a noticeable percentage, um, 
it's going to default to whiteness for a couple of reasons. One, most white people are monocultural in our orientation. We're used to being in the majority, so we don't really we don't really have the competency to 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 flow between different cultures. We we just are what we are. Uh, on the other hand, most people of color are uh, ambidextrous in this regard. Are are able to kind of flow with majority culture because that's you know what what the white collar world is. That's what the educational world is. Uh, and then kind of default to their culture of origin as well. So you have a dynamic where you have one group of people who are kind of stuck in their monocultural orientation. And then you have a, a bunch of other people who can flow a little bit more. The other thing that uh, people of color know about most white people is that most white people will interpret discomfort as being uh, uh, an indication that something is wrong and, and they'll leave. And so, so you got these people who are only comfortable in their own culture. If they get uncomfortable, they're probably going to leave. And so most of the people of color, because they believe in this vision of a multiracial community, work to accommodate the white people in the, in the church. So there's all kinds of le levels and layers here, funky stuff going on, right? Uh, it's a mess. Um, so what, 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 when you see a truly multicultural uh, church in this country, often there's no white people in it which changes the dynamic. So I have friends who pastor in the New York area who pastor multicultural churches with no white people in them, multi-ethnic multi churches with no white people in them. Or you have very intentional discipleship and leadership around the power of racial whiteness to, um, to hijack the mission of that, that multicultural conversation congregation. So you have to intentionally and regularly be pushing against it, both to kind of give a heads up to the white people that you are going to feel uncomfortable here. And if you're going to last, you're going to come to accept that and understand that that's actually the Holy Spirit working in your life. But also to, to signal to the people of color in the, in the congregation, we need you to be present here with your full selves. We don't need you to coddle the white people or to accommodate the white people that will actually hinder the, the mission of, of, of this particular congregation. Guys get his book. That's just, that's that's the main. If you haven't learned anything, um, get this book. Sheesh, um, you know what? You you've mentioned a lot of references, so I'm assu I'm assuming you're very studious. You like to I like research. to read. I do like to read. You like you like to know. Um, what do you do for fun? Because I'm like, man, you've mentioned this professor from Ohio State. I'm like, that's a very specific. Like, what are some <laughs> things you do for fun? Well, I do have an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old uh, sons, so that is just fun regardless. Just day-to-day -day is not boring with, with either of them, I, I will say, uh, if anybody has has young children and boys in, in particular. Um, yeah, so just keeping up with their interests and with their hobbies is 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 a blast. Um, I do like to read. I mean, reading is fun to me. I do. I know that's not everybody's idea of a good time, but I do enjoy that. Um I, this is going to sound pretty, I don't know what it's going to sound like to you guys, but I've gotten into birding lately. Like, yeah, see, that's the appropriate response. I don't know if people on the podcast can see you or not, but your face is an appropriate response. Um, yeah, it's so funny. I saw this meme the other day. It said, I, I never thought about birds until I turned 40 and now I see them everywhere. It's like, that that's, that happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> So we actually live like a, a few blocks away from Lake Michigan, and there's this beautiful uh, park that was constructed during the Chicago World's Fair. And uh, because we're right on Lake Michigan, we're like on a migratory route for birds from all over the world. 
And so just, I can walk, you know, half mile and different times of the year, see birds that are coming from all over the world. I've, that's actually become like a spiritual practice for me. The next book that I'm working on has to do with the intersection of um, creation and race. And so I've been spending a lot more time just kind of thinking about environmental ethic and so on. Um, so I love that. I love, I love being in that space. And my, my, my Sabbath day is Tuesdays. And so I'll walk out there for hours, no matter what the weather is, just soaking it up. Just, I love that. Uh, and then I'll say the last thing, Chicago is the best food city in the world. No shade to anybody else, but like we have the best, best food in the world because we have all these great neighborhoods. So I love eating in different places. My wife and I love trying out different restaurants, uh, depending on the mood. Um, so if you want to eat really well, come to Chicago. So good. That's so good. Our last question before we transition, what does it mean for you to be authentically you? Man, that's a, that's, <laughs> I know that you've asked, asked that question to probably everybody. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a question that I've wrestled with over the years, to be honest. So growing up in a, as a, um, cultural minority, um, I think I learned at a very early age to try to blend in as much as possible. Right. Cause you know, my skin color, my accent, all of that, my hair color, all of it made it very clear that I'm not from here. Like I'm, I'm not one of the, the, the group. And so trying to figure out the accent as quickly as possible. You know, I remember being a kid and not totally knowing the language yet, but trying to pick up like, should I be laughing right now? Everybody else is laughing. I need to laugh right now. Do you know what I'm saying? Like to not be on the outside. And that formed me in, in a pretty deep way, I think, to sort of be almost like a chameleon, right? Like depending on what situation I'm in, read the cues, read the social cues, find a way to, to blend in. So that that's actually a question that I, I've wrestled with a lot over the years. I have a spiritual director who she and I meet, you know, once a month for the past 13, 14 years. And this has been a kind of topic of conversation for, for me. So I'll, I'll say that, that what I'm coming to understand um, is that God has given me a particular experiences that are my experiences and that have shaped how I see the world, like growing up where I grew up in the setting where I grew up, that was not unintentional. Uh, God has given me particular lenses of seeing uh, the world, of of trying to synthesize things, of of seeing things that maybe other people haven't had the chance to see. Um, even like this example of birds, like my church is so so tired of sermon illustrations about birds. But I'm like, you all got to see this. Like they're all around you. This is God. I know we live in the city, but God's creation is everywhere. We can't miss this. This is important. They kind of roll their eyes and laugh a little bit. Um, but the last thing is, I, I'm really taken by by this idea that. Um, that God's creation still holds the power to form us, uh, to shape us, uh, to make us fully who God has called us to be, that, that we are people of the dust. We are people of the dirt. That is the breath of God breathed into to, to the clay, to the dirt that, that breathes life into us. And so there's something important about the fact that I've lived in Chicago for 20 years, that I've lived in this neighborhood for a long time. That's gotten into my skin in a way, right? Like that's shaped me in a way. So to be authentically me is to be authentically me in this place. There should be things about me that are kind of ununderstandable unless you understand my place. Like you have to understand kind of where I come from in order to truly understand me. And that is so foreign to racial whiteness 
racial whiteness is like detached from place. It's hovering above place. It's saying place doesn't matter. So that's been a big part of my spiritual journey lately. And it's been so, so good. It's just been so refreshing. And um, yeah, it's something I, I hope to invite more of us into. Man, thank you so much. That was such a real answer, a real authentic answer. So um, definitely appreciate that. But we do want to transition to our next segment, which is called Rapid Fire. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, beep, beep. Now, uh, Rapid Fire is when you ask you three questions and you're going to answer. First thing that comes to mind, don't pass go. Don't grab any of those books behind you. <laughs> um, they're super deep as well. So super first deep. question is, what is the best pizza in Chicago? It's called Peace, P-I-E-C-E. And this is a little heretical because it's not deep dish. It's a thin crust, Connecticut style pizza. It's phenomenal. It's been my favorite for at least 15 years. I'm writing it down next time when we go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, what breaks your heart? Apathy and contentment with the status quo. And who has influenced you most in your life? I think my parents for sure, uh, without, without a doubt, I've been married for 23 years. So my wife, absolutely. Um, and then I've been blessed with some incredible mentors. I, I remember being in grad school and hearing people talk about being mentored by this person and that person. I'm like, I want a mentor. I want a mentor like that. And I heard somebody say, if you don't have actual mentors, pray that God would bring mentors into your life. And I did. I started praying for that. And when I look at the mentors that I have now, the women and the men who have such wisdom and such experience have done such a mate. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I even know you, much less that you are mentoring me. Um, man, I, it's, so I would say that to anybody, anybody out there who feels like they they need a mentor, especially in a certain area, just start praying, praying that God will bring you in, in, into relationship with somebody. Man, David, this has been so, so good. Um, please uh, let the people know where they can find you. Uh, let us know what you have coming up. Uh, yeah. Well, likewise, fellas, this was really, really good. Thank you for what you're doing. You, you're both really gifted conversationalists and asking questions. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I have a website. It's just uh, dwswanson, uh, dwswanson.com. So all the links to social media and stuff can be found there. I do a, a an occasional newsletter that links to, to that as well. I'm uh, under contract writing this book uh, on creation and, and race. Uh, it's not going as quickly as I would like it to go because our church is in the middle of uh, purchasing a pretty significant property right now that we're partnering with a school and a nonprofit on. So I'm in way over my head on all of that. Don't have any experience doing that, but that's the, that's the big exciting project that I do have in front of me. Well, uh, thank you again so much for your time and for this uh, interview. Thanks to you guys. Really appreciate it. Blessings, blessings to this good work until next time. Be authentic in everything that you do. so so good um he's so knowledgeable but the one thing that like really just is sitting with me is 
how he answered what it means to be authentically him. And he said that, like, what it means for him to be authentically who he is is that you shouldn't be able to understand him unless you understand his place and where he's from. That was, yeah, that was mind-blowing. Yeah, and just his realness about that, you know, he said he's still, you know, coming to grips with that too. And I, I love that. I also just loved how intentional he is about this work that he's doing and how carefully um, he's going about it and how prayerfully and how he's truly relying on the Holy Spirit to go through it because um, it is it is hard work. And I love that a white pastor that's living in the South Side is, is standing on you know, the grounds to help redisciple the white church to understand mm-hmm. that there, there are things that need to be changed. Yeah. And to see and hear his passion through that is, is, is amazing. It's like him really living out the church. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, very hope filled. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what time it is. Boy, it is the friendship the friendship quiz where it proves that in 2023 conroy is the better friend yeah we'll see about that um so my question for you is what shoe size do i wear shoe size come on come on bro uh you wear Size nine. Final answer. So close. I'll give you that. Eight and a half. But you were very ah. close. Okay, but I'm sure some some shoes are nine. If I wear like two or three socks on it for oh, sure. Okay. But you should give it to me, so I'll take it. <laughs> So one for this year. Let's go, man. Hey, guys, this has been an amazing episode. Um, take a look at our social medias. Guys, we have T-shirts now. DMS, if you uh, would like a T-shirt, Authentically Us, uh, the podcast T-shirts, take a look at our, our social media and give us a review, a like, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to be dropping every single Tuesday. Don't miss it. And until next time, be authentic in everything that you do. Peace. Peace.